invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. While you're turning there, in my opening prayer, I was praying for those that have not been here in months. And I was thinking specifically of John and Judy Juckstock. And I've just been informed that they are present. They're not in this building. They're in, they're in this room. They're in one of the, uh, the ante-rooms near us. So they're watching on. And it just rejoices the heart since they have not been here in many, many months. I'm not sure if they were here the first Lord's Day of January or whether they, it was the last Lord's Day of December they were last here, but we're glad that they're here, so make sure you see them and welcome them if you can, and don't overwhelm them at the same time. It's good to have them here. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 13, the Apostle is dealing with a number of queries and questions that have arisen. You see in verse 9, as touching brotherly love, that was one of the queries. And in chapter 5, verse 1, again, he says there's, again, there's something else there that clearly was a query in their mind, but of the times and the seasons, brethren. And there's certain things he's addressing because there was questions in their minds and Verse 13 reveals the same. So let's read from verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to the end of the chapter. Familiar words. May the Lord give us the light we need as we look at them. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. But this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. May God be pleased to help us appreciate His infallible word and to receive it for our profit. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our God and Father, we thank Thee for all that has preceded this point, the worship, the praise, our hearts being lifted up by the lines of the hymns and the psalms, and we thank Thee for songs of praise. We thank Thee for a new song. We thank Thee for answered prayer as well. John and Judy being with us here this morning, we give thee praise for hearing us, continue to hear us as we intercede on their behalf and on behalf of others. O oh God, we need thee in these days. We pray that thou wilt truly give the comfort that we need in dark days. Thou art a God that hears and answers the cry of thy people. We have an advocate with the Father. We pray that his intercessory work would, would prevail to the benefit of this body and the church of Jesus Christ abroad. As we come to thy word, we pray that thou wilt again just give us what we do not possess of ourselves, the help of the Spirit. May his ministry be known. May our hearts be gladdened. May our souls be, in, be instructed. And may it be effective and helpful for us, not just for today, but for all the days that are ahead until we see thee face to face and sing the story saved by grace. Hear prayer and give help to this preacher now in Jesus' name. Amen. It is never easy to know what to say to someone that has lost a loved one 
It's never easy to know exactly how to formulate the words or how to express our sympathy and how to draw near to those that we are concerned about that are bereaved. Throughout history, men have struggled to wrap their heads around death. Their personal sense of uncertainty about the hereafter and the sense of the finality that is felt whenever one passes, when a loved one dies, is constantly a meditation of humanity throughout the nations, regardless of where we're from or what our background may be. After the death of the American preacher Jonathan Edwards, his wife Sarah wrote to their daughter Esther, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness, that we had Him so long. But my God lives, and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. She expresses at the beginning, What shall I say? It's hard to know what to say. But what would the Apostle Paul say if he was seeking to comfort the Lord's people? What would he say to those mourning the death of loved ones? That appears to be the context of our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13 and following. This fledgling congregation had experienced the loss of those that were dear to them. And Paul writes very specifically to address their concerns. And he intends his words to be a means of comfort. That's what it says in verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Of course, men being men, these verses, rather than being a source of comfort to the church, have been a source of division, a source of argument, a source of confrontation and dispute to divide the body of Christ in relation to the particulars of the Lord's return. But that is not the intent. Perhaps when reading these verses, you're imagining, well, what's he going to say? What is going to be his particular view? And what is going to be said today that may upset some or may make me happy because, well, he has my view and so on and so forth. Well, I don't know whether that was going through your mind or not. But if I was to focus on those particulars, I would miss the point. So as we look at these verses together, God giving us help, we're considering them under the heading, Comfort for Separated Saints. Comfort for Separated Saints. And by separated saints, I mean the beloved of the Lord who are separated by death. Those that are severed by the experience of death. Some passing into eternity, leaving others behind. And note with me in this three primary headings, the trouble, the truth, and the triumph that is here in this text. First of all, the trouble. The trouble. When you read through this passage, it deals with the Lord's return, of that there is no doubt. And the question may be, was Paul diligent to deal with the Lord's return when he was there, when he was in this particular city, and whenever he planted churches, wherever he went? Well, if you look at the end of every single chapter of this epistle, and it's just the way it falls out in the division of this. Paul didn't have, of course, these verse and chapter divisions, but the way it falls out in the breaks of thought, you can see the Lord's return being dealt with in, at the end of each chapter. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1, where he speaks of those who have been turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, waiting for his Son from heaven. The end of chapter 2. You have verse 19. What is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? The end of chapter 3. You look at verse 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, we're looking at chapter 4, and even in chapter 5, you have it addressed as well, that 
the Lord's return is made mention of verse 23, the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray God your whole spirits and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly they knew about the Lord's return. This is a subject that comes out repeatedly in this epistle and was something that the apostle made them conscious of that the the one he was pointing them to for their salvation will return. He doesn't have to explain that this is happening, that the one I taught you about, the one I pointed you to, the one you believe in is going to come back. He makes mention of this in ways that implies they already knew this. So clearly they knew about the Lord's return. And they also knew about the resurrection. Even here in chapter 4, verse 16, he speaks of the resurrection without explanation. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. He doesn't explain that, but there is therefore the implication that they're understanding people are going to rise. There's going to be a resurrection. So what was troubling them? What is the concern that they had? Well, there are a number of things I want you to see first. That they seem to believe that the dead were disadvantaged at the resurrection. They seem to believe that the dead were disadvantaged at the resurrection. In verse 15, the apostles speaks by the word of the Lord. Here's the authority. Here's divine um, insight that has been given to the apostle. And he speaks authoritatively as to this point that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. There seems to be an assumption there that those that are asleep, those that have already died and passed away from this scene of time, as it were, who are no longer in the congregation, that they are disadvantaged, that they are somehow prevented or excluded from the events that are to unfold at the coming of the Lord. But Paul says we will not prevent them. Rather, as we go on to say, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So they are not disadvantaged. There's no disparity of experience. The heart of his message is to show that we will all enter into a very similar experience at the coming of the Lord. This belief of disparity of experience meant that they believed there would be no meeting of the living and the dead at the return of Christ. Again, if you look at verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. He is Enforcing this point, that those that have gone, God will see fit to bring them at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be a disparity. They're not going to be left out of the joy of that experience. Verse 17, again, you can see the emphasis. They're all going to be brought and caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And again, there's a sense of bringing us together, addressing the concern of division that was felt by those in the church that thought that those that had died, that they were never going to see them, certainly not at the return of Jesus Christ. Then the belief, thirdly, that there would be no meeting of the living and the dead at the return caused them excessive sorrow because they thought there was a disparity. And because they weren't going to be present and there wasn't going to be a collective reunion at the return of the Lord, this brought them sorrow. You can see that in verse 13, that he says that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. I don't want you sorrowing as you are. And clearly that sorrow was profound because verse 18, the words that he has given are intended to comfort them. They're therefore in a condition of being not comforted. They're distressed, they're worried, they're concerned. They're feeling a sense that there's a loss here that cannot be, cannot be uh, helped in any way. And so in the midst of that sorrow that they felt, the apostle addresses it. And all the trouble was caused by ignorance. Not by false teaching, but by ignorance. And then there may have been some false ideas that were being imposed by their pagan uh, previously held beliefs, perhaps, But you can see the heart of the problem is ignorance. Verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to stay in a condition, in a place of not knowing. You need to know these things. The trouble you're feeling, the sorrow you experience, 
the lack of comfort that you feel at present is because you don't know. Now I could get sidetracked here and just emphasize the, the importance of teaching. And it's important for us to realize that much of our ills, much of our struggles, many of our trials are because we simply don't know what is true. We don't know what is right. Our ignorance causes us great distress and concern. And people will continue to say, oh, I'm not interested in doctrine. I don't want deep teaching. I just, just, just give me the simplicity of the gospel. We rejoice in the simplicity of the gospel. The emphasis must be there in terms of our evangelistic endeavor, and we should never lose the sense of the simplicity of what is offered to us in Jesus Christ. But if we remain, and again, is this not what the apostle deals with also in, in Hebrews chapter 6? He, he wants them not to stay where they were. Hebrews 6 verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and so on and so forth. There needs to be a pushing on, a going forward, a progression. Well, this church hadn't progressed to the point of knowing how to deal with those that are in Christ who die before the Lord returns. And the answer is very simple. Truth. The truth. That's why he can say at the end of this portion, verse 18, comfort one another. He has a confidence that the words given, the truth spoken, is sufficient to bring comfort to the believer. They don't need anything additional. In fact, this is the problem so often, is that God's people try to find comfort everywhere but where they should find comfort. And so they turn to people, and they turn to plans, and they turn to programs. But they need to come back to the truth. They need to return to the infallible, unchangeable Word of God. They need to have the mind of God. And when they have the mind of God, they are able, by grace, to deal with the struggles of life and bring glory to God amidst those struggles. I don't want to underestimate the sorrow that they were feeling. Clearly, it was not something that could be easily ignored. Paul gives a very, fairly lengthy portion just dealing with this singular problem. This distress in the church because loved ones had died. died. Why had they died? We, we don't know. Have they been martyred? Possibly. It doesn't really express that clearly that that was the case. But some that had received the gospel, some that had come to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ in this congregation had passed into eternity since the apostle had left. And those that were watching on were now troubled at the thought, they're not going to enter into the experience that we will. And they were sorrowing more excessively than they would have if they only knew the truth. So that's the trouble. Secondly, then, the truth. What is the truth that Paul expresses here? Well, in verse 13, he writes, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That's just a euphemism for those who have passed away, those who have left this scene of time. They fall asleep in the Lord Jesus. The sense is that their bodies will be reconciled, reunited rather with their souls. And that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Paul acknowledges the despair of death for the unbeliever. That there is a sense of hopelessness for those that do not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Christian has a unique hope, a certain hope that belongs to them alone. Now no doubt the pagans had their ways of understanding and dealing with death. But they had nothing to believe, listen to me, they had nothing to believe that was rooted in reality and would impact their eternity. The, the, the pagans had nothing that was rooted in reality. In contrast, believers had a creed rooted not in human imagination, but in history. 
That's what verse 14 expresses. Look at it. If we believe, or since we believe, is really what the apostle expresses there. Since we believe, here is the creed, the creed of the church, that Jesus died and rose again. That's the creed of the church. You can crystallize the gospel into those that believe and have received the reality, the historical reality of Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world, living, dying, and rising again, and believing it to the saving of their souls. That is the foundation of the church. In fact, we'll not turn to it for time, but if you were to go back to Acts chapter 17, and the establishment of this church in this city, you will read what Paul's, kind of again, the an overview of what Paul was dealing with when he went into the synagogue. Acts 17 verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ, present indicative. He is still living, still existing, but he must suffer. He had to die and then rise again from the dead. That was his message when he went into the synagogue there in Thessalonica. He went in there with this message proclaiming that this Jesus, that he lived, he died, he rose again, and this is the way of salvation for all men. Now some believed it, they received it, and this then is the creed of the church. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that's the heart. All that he is going to extrapolate out of that, every truth that he will deal with, is hinging upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us in being here on the earth, living on our behalf, dying upon the cross in his atoning death, and rising again from the dead. And so he, he comes back to this simple creed of the church, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe it? Is this not the foundation of your hope? Is this not the answer, in a, in a nutshell, for your access before God, for your entrance into heaven, of your assurance of your salvation? It is not what you have done. It is what He has done. That He lived, He died, He rose again. Since we believe, that is what we believe. We believe the historic reality of God sending His Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. And if He is the Savior of sinners by this, this act of living for us, dying for us, rising again for us. This changes everything. And out of this then we begin to understand Two unions that are crucial and are relevant to this portion. First, those that believe this creed are in union with Christ. And second, those that believe this creed are in union with each other. And those are the two things that, that we learn here from this passage and we want to work them out in their implications. First, their union with Christ. The significance of Christ's death and resurrection to believers is not just in the historical reality, but in the mystical union that exists between Christ and His people. Yes, it's an historical event, but what meaning does that have unless it becomes real to me or in some way becomes significant to me to save my soul? And that is brought about by the work of the Spirit, whereby we are in a mystical union with Christ so that His death and resurrection has massive repercussions to us who believe in Him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. He is assuming there a union. He is assuming that in His death we were there, and in His resurrection we are there. And so there is this a certainty of a resurrection for us. few things to consider here. First, our union with Christ means our body belongs to Christ. Our union with Christ means our body belongs to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the end of that chapter, the Apostle Paul writes, What 
Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now the significance of that, beloved, is in what happens at the resurrection. It is the fact that since the body belongs to Christ, and since that is true, regardless of what happens, that death itself does not destroy the ownership that Christ has over the body. Therefore, we need not worry about what is going to occur to those of our loved ones who die before the return of Jesus Christ. Their body belongs to Christ. We can be sure, therefore, that because of that union that exists between them, that even death itself cannot sever, that He will bring their bodies from the grave at the time appointed. Our union with Christ means our body belongs to Christ. Our union with Christ means that as Christ's time and death was temporary, so it is with his people. He was in the grave for a temporary period of time, indicating that so will be for all of his people too. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, so the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it dwells in you. Since that's the case, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 8.13 There will be a quickening just as there was for the, the physical body of Christ that it could not remain in the grave. It could not stay in the tomb. That that same spirit that rose Christ, raised Christ from the dead, is the same spirit that will cause your mortal body to rise from the grave as well. It will not stay there forever. Thirdly, our union with Christ means that as Christ experienced a bodily resurrection, so will his people, just going on the back of what we said, It has to be temporary in nature. As he experienced a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, so will his people. Romans 8, 23. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, that is to say, the redemption of our body. The experience of redemption as to the body. You think of what Paul has been dealing with. You think about what he has dealt with in Romans chapter 6 in relation to our union with Christ. But there's still this battle. And we, we, we are struggling with sin. And he goes on then to express that in a very autobiographical way in chapter 7. The, the, the struggle of the believer with sin. And so we groan. We groan. Believer, do you not groan within yourself? Is there not at times those waves of experience where you just lament, why am I such a sinner? How come, how come I cannot get an absolute victory? And so you groan within yourself, waiting for the redemption of the body. When the body will be changed and transformed and made like onto His glorious body. This body that you have, this flesh that you wrestle with, you await its redemption. And it will come. Christ's body rose from the grave, so will yours. Then fourthly, our union with Christ means that as His humanity was glorified, so will it be for His people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And there's a lot in 1 Corinthians 15 that is related to what we're dealing with here. As Paul gives us a clear understanding of the resurrection in the face of, again, a lack of understanding, a lack of teaching and false teaching in relation to what is going to occur. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. It's two ways of saying essentially the same thing. This flesh can't go as it is into the place where God dwells. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So again, this is playing off of what uh, is building upon and, and saying the same thing as what we're looking at. We shall not all sleep. In other words, there will be those that will be alive at this point of Christ's return. We shall not all sleep, but regardless of whether we're in the grave or living, we shall all be changed. All will be changed because all bodies belong to Christ. All believers belong to Christ. They're in union with Him. And this change will take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Again, the dead in Christ raised first. We shall be changed as well. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so this is the final victory over death as he goes on to express. This is the full experience of Christ's redemptive work. That his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead assures because we are in vital union with Him that this body that causes us so much grief here will be transformed. And for those who have gone and leave their bodies in the grave or wherever they may be left, they will be reunited with those same bodies yet changed, glorified, made like unto Christ. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven. Our behavior is in heaven. Our, our, really what we, who we are belongs there. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. Now when He was on the earth in His ministry... His body did not look any more glorious than anyone else's. He was just, he looked just like any other Jew living in Israel at the time. But there's a transformation, a glory that was given as he rose from the dead. And that glory that prepared that humanity to enter in, to pass into the heavens, to be there where humanity, corruptible humanity, does not belong. Yet by taking our humanity and seeing it glorified and entering into the presence of God forever, He makes way for us. And by our union with Him, we will experience the same blessing, a changed humanity, able to enter into the presence of God at the resurrection. So that's their union with Christ. Significant for us to understand this in relation to the portion that is before us because it all hinges on this. The reason why this happens, the reason why Paul can express these truths and the fact that there will be the gathering of the saints in this way is because of their union with Christ. Then their union with all believers. Not only will Jesus Christ reappear again, but there will also be a reappearance of those that died in Him. Again, the end of verse 14. Them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. The end of verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Far from being absent from the experience, as was the fear of those in the church, they will actually lead the way. They're actually going to be first in their experience now. It seems going by 1 Corinthians 15, this all happens in such a rapid way that it's very difficult for us to discern exactly what comes first and so on. It seems just in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, all these things begin to occur. But Paul understands, Paul, Paul knows that this is the order. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And we read in verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What a scene this is. Think of them. Think of them trying to receive comfort from his words, trying to understand what Paul is saying. The apostle is saying, look, you will see your loved ones again. Those children of God that have perished already, that have gone into eternity, you will all, we will all be collected and gathered on that day in bodies recognizable. You will see your redeemed loved ones 
You will see those dear church members that you labored with for the cause of Jesus Christ. We will all be gathered and gathered in a way unlike ever before experienced. All the church in one place. Never has that occurred before. All the church not separated by time. Gathered unto Christ. This is what the head has assured for the body. Christ as the head of His church will gather all members together. And none will be disadvantaged. None will be left out. None will be set aside. None will be on the sidelines. All will be gathered. They must. They will all assemble around the Lord Jesus. What a day that will be. Again, the end of chapter 1. Verse 10 of this epistle where he says, They wait for his son from heaven. They wait for his son from heaven. And you know, some, you read that at times and you, you think, well, had Paul led them to believe that most certainly Christ would return in their generation? It doesn't. We read that into it. We are all waiting for Christ to appear from heaven. All of us. In fact, those who already are dead, who have gone into eternity, are also waiting for His Son from heaven, as it were. Not in the same way, but they're waiting for the same event. They're waiting for the unification again of body and soul. They're looking for that. All the saints are waiting for Christ. And we on the earth, we wait for Him. We do, we wait for Him. We labor, we occupy till He comes. We're constantly going about the business as God has appointed us responsibilities and given us privileges to labor for Him. But we all wait. We're not waiting in the sense like we're doing nothing, waiting until He comes. But, but there's an expectation He will return. He is coming back. And we go about our business and we discharge our duties faithfully, knowing deep down by the teaching of the Spirit of God, Christ will return. And when he does, what a scene. What a scene. All saints, all of them. Abraham, Isaac, everyone from Abel. Abel will be there. Finally, reunited with his body that was slain by his brother. He will be there. And every saint that has trusted in the blood of atonement, since then, will be there. Everyone for whom Christ died will be there. Nothing will prevent this. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will hinder it. Christ will see that His people will be gathered onto Himself. And the way they died, and the period in which they died, and whatever else may be argued as to, well, this might, maybe because they didn't live a good Christian life, maybe because they were they continued in a condition of spiritual immaturity all of their days, that will not make a difference. Nothing makes a difference. The one question is this. Was the soul in union with Christ? Were they joined to Christ? Do they have faith in Christ? Are they resting in Christ? They will be there. They will all be there. That brings us then thirdly to consider the triumph. The triumph. In verses 16 and 17, there's an air of triumph here. We read, The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. He shall descend from heaven. Well, this is the first note of triumph we see. The fulfillment of his promise. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Luke's gospel already gives us a scene of Christ's ascent being carried up into heaven in Luke 24. But he begins 
The book of Acts, in a similar fashion, reading from verse 9, Acts 1, verse 9. When he, that is Christ, had spoken these things while they beheld, that's the disciples looking on, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The same Jesus. That is, the Jesus that you knew, who died and rose again, and ascends in this glorified humanity into the heavens. He will return. He will descend. This was what was promised. And Paul says this is what's going to happen. As he ascended into heaven, so he will descend. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. The Lord himself. Not a different one. Not an imposter. The only redeemer of God's elect. The one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. One of whom Peter says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This one, this only one, will descend as he ascended. He will return in like manner. That's the fulfillment of his word. What a triumph that is, to know that what he has promised will come to pass. There's also the manifestation of his power. Not really going to get too much into this. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you see the words, shout, voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And of course, you want to hone in on that and say, well, what exactly is that? And whose is the shout? And so on and so forth. Is this the last trump? Or, you know, well, I'm not going to get into that. John Calvin said... I think this is helpful, at least for this time and where we are presently today. The apostle unquestionably had nothing farther in view here than to give some taste of the magnificence and venerable appearance of the judge until we shall behold it fully. With this taste, it becomes us in the meantime to rest satisfied. His point is to just help us see the magnificence of the return, but not to get so bogged down in details that you start arguing about the exact timing of it all. It's often vain, though it may have its purpose at times, but crucially, crucially, it is not the point of the passage. There's much to learn from the passage. And systematically, you can pull out whatever doctrine that it deals with and look at it and begin to deal with the doctrine of last things and learn many things from what is said. And you can pull together. Is this the same trump of 1 Corinthians 15? Well, how does it fit with the trumps in Revelation? You can look at all of that. But essentially, it is the fact that there's this power that is unleashed. Christ comes not as he came the first time. He doesn't come under a cloak and guise of, of, of a veiled glory, taking on our humanity and being an infant in a manger, having nothing, nothing of the splendor that he had in heaven. But he will come, he will return to this earth in the fashion expressed to declare his absolute sovereign power over all peoples, over all things. Nothing will stop it. And even the greatest authority on earth will, be, will shudder if he is not in Christ at the appearance of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we have, of course, here also the glory of his presence. Verse 17, So shall we ever be with the Lord so shall we ever be with 
the Lord. This is the fulfillment of the work of Christ in its absolute sense. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. To bring us to God. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Adam, by his disobedience, plunged all himself and all his posterity into a condition of being separated from God had no right into the presence of God, had no grounds to appear before God, had no argument for any privileges from God. This is what Adam accomplished for us. The curse, judgment, condemnation, wrath, separation forever. But the last Adam, he reverses all that Adam did. And he deals with each and every issue that might separate the sinner from God. And it becomes the offering and the offerer, the sacrifice and the priest. And he lays down his life, the just one, for the unjust, to bring us to God. And he brings us to God in such a way that no matter what happens, even death itself, nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every believer that comes to your mind who has gone to glory, every dear loved one who has passed into eternity, knowing Christ, resting in Christ, you will see them. You will see them. You will gather around Christ. There with them you will meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, the body perfectly united with the head, every member in perfect harmony with the great head of the church, forever, forever with the Lord. And then, Eden. Eden for the people of God. Eden in a way that can never fall again. What rejoicing in His presence when our banished grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain. I shall know Him. Do you know Him? Do you know Christ? If death was to come suddenly to you, would you be gathered with all the saints? Or will you be separated forevermore? There's a great gulf fixed. can never be crossed. The condition after death is sealed, settled. Your appointment to heaven or hell cannot be changed. Do you belong to Christ? The sorrows of this life will continue. You've no doubt experienced many of them already. And there are many more, no doubt, should God spare us. And Christ tarry in his return. But these things, these truths, the thought of what will happen to those who die rather than those that will be living when Christ returns, sorrowing over the possibility of some secondary experience, sorrowing over the fact they're not going to enter into the full enjoyment that we will enter into, all that is sorrowing without reason, without grounds. Every child of God will be gathered together in a glorious reunification of the church of Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us a joyous hope in the anticipation of that great day. Let's bow together in prayer.
Our Father, we're thankful that we come to one that knows our sorrows and our cares and concerns. And we're thankful that the cares that have been addressed in the past by holy men of old that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost can bring the equivalent comfort that it brought to those of old to our hearts as well. We thank Thee for truth. We thank Thee for the foundation of the truth that we believe. We thank Thee for a gospel rooted in history, a message established when God invades time, sending His Son to be the Savior of the world. We praise Thee for Thy redemptive love and for Thy Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, may this move us to gratitude, to praise, to service, to thanksgiving. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever separate the believer from their Savior. Help us then to find this, our greatest joy, Hear our prayer, be with us in our fellowship, and as we return to our homes, bring us back again tonight to hear from Thee, to be blessed from Thy Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.